Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you're of the generous sort, you can be like Ben, Janet, Robin, Garrett, John, and Jerry, who also play the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or a one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and even face masks on our Teespring store, if you feel so inclined. Make sure to check it out. I'd like to remind our listeners that recording today is taking place in Mi'kmaq, the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq peoples. This territory is covered by the Treaties of Peace and Friendship, which Mi'kmaq and Maliseet peoples first signed with the British Crown in 1725. We are all treaty people. Our guest today is Mi'kmaq lawyer Rosalie Francis. Rosalie is a Mi'kmaq lawyer who is a member of the Spaganagni Mi'kmaq First Nation community. She currently operates an independent practice, Our Francis Law, where she works closely with local Indigenous communities. Having been involved in Aboriginal rights and issues for a number of years, Rosalie has extensive experience working specifically with Mi'kmaq communities located in the Atlantic region. Part of her early career was focused on Indigenous justice issues and the implementation of the Donald Marshall Jr. Royal Commission recommendations regarding treaty rights to fish. She also played an advisory role to the Assembly of Nova Scotia Mi'kmaq Chiefs for several years, providing advice and support in governance development, consultation, Aboriginal rights, and Indigenous environmental knowledge issues. Welcome to the podcast, Rosalie. I really appreciate that you could take the time to join me today and chat a bit about law and fisheries, especially in the context of treaty rights. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here today. So my first question to help acquaint our listeners who may not be from our area is if you would mind explaining who Donald Marshall Jr. was and what the Marshall decisions mean for Indigenous harvesters here in Mi'kmaq. So Donald Marshall Jr. was a, was a Mi'kmaq man from Member 2 First Nation, which is a community in Cape Breton, uh, one of the 13 Mi'kmaq communities in Nova Scotia. And Junior was out fishing one day in Pompacate Harbor, which is near Anikinish. Uh, and he was, he was harvesting eels. And he was charged by uh, Department of Fisheries and Oceans uh, for a number of offenses, including uh, unlawful fishing without uh, required license. So he, he challenged that. He went to the, uh, the Assembly of Nova Scotia Chiefs. Well, no, in fact, he went to the Nova Sco- Union Nova Scotia Indians, which existed at that time, which is also a body of Mi'kmaq chiefs. And, you know, basically said, why do we have to have a license to harvest? Like, it doesn't make sense. We have treaties. Uh, they agreed and, uh, and, and, and launched a defense for him against these charges. Uh, the charges went through the provincial court, um, the court of appeal, and then to the Supreme Court. They were granted leave at the Supreme Court, and eventually won at the Supreme Court, <clears throat> where the Supreme Court uh, found that, in fact, because of uh, our, our Mi'kmaq treaties, uh, Donald Marshall was not guilty of the offenses as charged, and he had a, a treaty right to fish for them eels. And he had a treaty right to uh, to sell those eels. To- and we've mentioned the words treaty rights and Aboriginal rights a couple of times now. And I was wondering if you could explain the difference between the two. Sure. Um, treaty rights and Aboriginal rights are both, first of all, considered Section 35 rights, uh, which are protected under the Constitution of Canada. Um, but they're distinct rights in the sense of where they arise from in law. 
So treaty rights, like the title, arise from the treaties that were signed between the Mi'kmaq and the Crown uh, during the 1700s. There was a number of treaties that were signed, uh, a number of them which have been recognized as, by the court as valid. And it's through those treaties that uh, Mi'kmaq people and the Willowstook and the Passamaquoddy have certain rights with regards to harvesting resources, selling resources, hunting, fishing, gathering, uh, and other rights contained in those. And so those treaty rights though, just to be clear, are considered uh, rights, I would almost characterize them as rights that protected a way of life for the Mi'kmaq. They protected uh, things that were essential to us uh, as Indigenous people. And they were not uh, treaties that surrendered land or title um, as exist in other places in Canada. And then Aboriginal rights, of course, um, also are Section 35 rights. But these are rights that um, the court has clarified that Indigenous people uh, can rely on these rights if they can meet a test um, by the court uh, that establishes that the rights are integral to the culture and existed prior to contact. Um, and through this test, the court will look at the actual uh, character of the right and decide if it meets uh, the qualification of an Aboriginal right. And if it does, then it is considered an Aboriginal right. So for the Mi'kmaq, we have existing Aboriginal rights and we have existing treaty rights. We have both. Something that I imagine makes your job incredibly difficult at times is the notion of legal pluralism or the existence of multiple legal systems, whether that be federal, provincial or Indigenous. Can you speak to this at all from your experience as an Indigenous lawyer? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that's a great question because I think that's a key question for some of the struggle that uh, Indigenous people are facing in this country uh, today and specifically uh, in the Atlantic that we as Mi'kmaq uh, and Willis-Dewey are facing in regards to the implementation of treaty rights because one of the key issues that um, is essential that in our minds in the implementation of our rights is our ability to govern and ability to govern in accordance with our laws and with our beliefs and our perceptions. Um, and of course, that flies in the face of existing legislation, uh, Canadian legislation, I want to say, federal legislation, and potentially provincial legislation, depending on what the issue is, um, and where there's an approach by Canada that that is the law and that is the law that has to be followed. But when you look at Indigenous rights from an international perspective uh, and just from uh, Aboriginal rights perspective, uh, as Indigenous people, we have a right to govern ourselves. We have a right, uh, and this this has been recognized under the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, that Indigenous people have a right to govern themselves. They have a right to take care of their lands in accordance with their own customs and cultures. And all of these things are embedded in how the Mi'kmaq want to be able to govern uh, their rights on um, livelihood. And you know, these are these are concepts that existed long. These laws existed long before non-Indigenous people arrived in these in these lands. So um, to be able to go back to that is essential to us as Indigenous people. It's a part of who we are, you know, as any people wanting to govern themselves uh, is to be able to manage that right. Um, and so the problem we run into is that 
we face Canada, who seems to be very reluctant to consider the idea of legal pluralism and the idea of how do we incorporate um, Indigenous thoughts, Mi'kmaq thoughts on management and harvesting and resources within the present system, within the present statutory common law system. Um, and then there's some that say, well, why would you do that? I mean, but it exists in other parts of Canada. I mean, you look at Quebec, uh, legal pluralism exists there and is incorporated into the Canadian system. So I think that's a real hump that we're going to have to get over. Um, and that's where the discussion, I think, needs to go on, on the idea of the incorporation of Indigenous laws within the management and implementation of, of Indigenous rights. A buzzword that I often hear in conversations about Indigenous fisheries is moderate livelihood. And I'm wondering if you can explain what this means in legal terms and why this is not satisfactory nor just for Indigenous communities. Well, that's a good question. And uh, there's so <laughs> that's a loaded question. There's so many answers to that, depending on who you speak to. So I'll do my best to give a piece of it. Um, so the, the term itself, first of all, was not created in the treaties. It's not in the treaties. It's not created by Mi'kmaq. It's created by, it was developed by the Supreme Court of Canada in their reasoning uh, on the Marshall decision. And they had utilized this term prior as well in another Indigenous Fish and Rights case. And so what they're saying is they're recognizing the ability to uh, for Mi'kmaq and Willowstook and indigenous people in the Atlantic to be able to harvest and to sell or to use a commercial aspect of that resource uh, to earn a livelihood for their communities. And when they say that, they're saying, you know, they tend to put in a context of livelihood being, I guess, a limit on how much money uh, and financial capacity you can bring and earn from selling your catch under a livelihood process or under a treaty rate process. And in many ways, you know, on one hand, it's a great thing that the court recognized the Mi'kmaq and Indigenous people in the Atlantic, their ability to sell that resource, because that is key for what was trying to be protected under the treaties was that way of life. And so on that part, you applaud it, right? As Indigenous, darn right. That's, that's contained in the treaty. That was the foresight of our ancestors. That was the way of our life. But on the other hand, you see the court doing this kind of dance to say, well, yes, you can sell your catches, but only for a livelihood. So then you pause and you say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that the court has a right to limit our livelihood rights based on what they think a livelihood is? And, and was the treaty meant to be limited in that way? Like, was it meant to be limited as a livelihood or was it just a commercial aspect? Uh, and that commercial aspect exists. And so why is it fair then to say that well, Indigenous people would have only sold this many things back then, so that's all they can have today. Well, hold on. The courts have said, other courts have said, you know, our rights are not frozen in time. Supreme Court has been clear on that. And our rights do not have to be 
taken into complete context based on the time period that they were negotiated. They flow, they move, and that's consistent with Indigenous governance. You know, every people evolve and move. So it almost is nonsensical that the Supreme Court would limit those rights to a livelihood when in fact, all they needed to do was say, no, the commercial aspect for rights is contained there. And that should have been it. But that is a little dance the Supreme Court did. Is it colonial based? I would say yes. I would say that's a part of the colonial structure we are within. Uh, yeah. I love the idea of rights, as you said, being a sort of living and flowing and moving body as opposed to something that's stagnant and frozen in time. And that, I mean, the courts have been clear on that one, but yet they don't remember that. Like, they've been clear that, you know, rights don't freeze. Like, the approach is, you know, when I look at that approach, I just, it, it's so based on a outdated perception of Indigenous people that we don't evolve, that we're only meant to be in this little limit of a little square and that's where we stopped. I mean, even the people in 1779 had evolved from 1500. Do you know what I mean? So could we sit there and say, well, your rights in 1779 were actually not what they were in 1500. So no, 1779 rights don't exist because they needed to be what they were in 1500. That just doesn't make logical sense, right? So I think, yeah, we have to think about the evolution of people. And, and it all comes back, I think, as well to the idea that, you know, the basic foundation is Indigenous people are peoples. Indigenous peoples are peoples like every other people, like French people, like uh, Black people, like Portuguese people, like, you know, we are all a people and every people has a have a right to develop their identity and their nations based on human rights concepts that exist for all people. And a part of that is growth and development. And we shouldn't be, I think, limited in our growth and development on our rights. Absolutely. I'm also interested in traditional Indigenous leadership, and we touched on this very briefly already, but you've said before that the Indian Act has fractured the political world of Indigenous communities, and I'm wondering if you can explain what governance looked like pre-European contact, what with the Grand Council and such. Yeah, there's no straight answer to that either. That is a very debatable question, and I'll, I'll give my perception of it, um, although you may get challenges to this. So, yeah, prior to contact, um, we had Indigenous governance. We had an Indigenous governance system. We had leadership in territories and communities. We had leadership in what uh, anthropologists have characterized as summer villages and winter villages. We came together as a nation, in, and that's well documented. Um, we came together during times of war and times of celebration, leadership from throughout the Atlantic. Uh, Picto, the Picto area, Marigomish Island, Picto Landon area was well known for being the meet and place of Indigenous leadership right, right up to the 1800s um, and canoes. I mean, there's well documented resources with 
the leadership all coming together um, from all over the Atlantic. And when you look at where Pictolandon is, is situated, you can see how it's central to easy access for New Brunswick, PEI, Cape Britain, lower mainland Nova Scotia, all of it. So, I mean, we had a governance system, absolutely. And that governance system consisted of leaders, of elders, uh, of warriors, uh, different roles within that system. And a part of that system was uh, dealing with territories, dealing with resources, dealing with how we work together in different areas. Um, and the Indian Act system has come along, came along in the 1800s through the Indian Act, where they imposed, you know, a chief and a council uh, for each Indian reserve. And so um, that kind of challenged the traditional system that eventually um, came to what we now have as a tradition. The traditional system still exists. It's called the Grand Council, Santimawiomi and Mi'kmaq. And it evolved in the sense that by, you know, the 1800s through contact and colonialism, the authority of our traditional governance system began to be lost. And not by, through the people not recognizing it, but through the government not recognizing it. So then they implemented these Indian Act chiefs and councils in the community. They'd say, no, the only person that can govern is, is actually a chief that's elected under the Indian Act. And so it wasn't that people in the community sat there and said, oh, I'm not going to recognize my traditional leader anymore. It was because, you know, you had an Indian agent and people saying, no, you have to do it this way, forcing us to elect an Indian Act chief and council, which is the system we have today. But how that fractured us is it made us function in a system that only recognized authorities through the Indian Act and authorities based on the Indian Act reserve system. Whereas in our traditional ways, we recognized our governance based on our interrelationship between the chiefs, between the territories and between our lands and our people. And so that would have functioned very differently because there wouldn't have been this, um, I guess there was a, an existing system of flux where dialogue occurred in an indigenous governance system where meetings were called, people spoke, what are the needs? And so it was a very organic system in recognizing the needs of each other and how do we all work together to cooperate and figure that out. Whereas under the Indian Act system, it became a very divided system. Whereas you are the chief of these reserve lands, you don't have authority over those other reserve lands and just these reserve lands. And so over time, no fault of our leadership or our own people, but over time you start to fall into this system where you're like, well, I don't really have authority over that land and I don't have authority over this land and I don't really have to talk to that other chief and I just have to deal with what I have here for council and I have to deal with people who live in this community. So what happens over time is you start to have a disconnect from the way we traditionally operated. And now we're trying to get back there and we're trying to rebuild it. And you see efforts and it's being done by the Indian Act chiefs and councils because those have become our leaders in our community. And they themselves recognize we have to figure out how to stay collective and how to govern ourselves. And that isn't an easy process. And that isn't something that can happen overnight. And sometimes I think it's unfair when we judge 
ourselves or others judge us as saying our governance and capacity is inadequate because it took 500 years to tear down our governance and capacity and to put colonial systems in place, but yet we're expected to figure it all out in in a year or two years when it may take us another 100 years to get back the system that is healthy and in the best interests of our people. Do you think that sort of political division and fracturing was an intentional mechanism of colonial oppression? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the Indian Act was a is a is an intention of colonial oppression because I mean, even the registration system for who's Indian eventually means that no one will be Indian. I mean, that's the whole intent of it, right? So you have to kind of look beyond it, even as a First Nation person to say, am I only an Indian under the Indian Act? Or what is my identity? And so trying to figure out our identity as Mi'kmaq people or Molistic people or Indigenous people in Canada outside of that Indian Act. I mean, that whole system is about, you know, control, conquer, divide, and, and mm-hmm. the way of Indigenous ways of knowing and thinking. Absolutely. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the Fisheries Act in Canada holds the country accountable on a federal level to respect and accommodate treaty rights through legislation and policy, rights implementation agreements, self-government excuse me, agreements, and so on. However, is it true that when, quote unquote, justifiable, the federal government is legally permitted to infringe upon treaty rights? And how does one justify this infringement legally? Yes. So because Section 35 rights are considered constitutional rights, it it holds them to a certain uh, level where government cannot just erode over them, just like your human right uh, or your charter right. You know, government has to justify any kind of erosion of that right. And so um, if the federal government wants to, you know, justify infringing on our rights, infringement could be we now want you guys not to fish in this area, or maybe we want you to have a license or whatever, however they're going to affect the right, they have to justify it. And in order to justify it, it has to be, it has to meet a certain requirement. uh, One of them being a legislative objective. There has to be some type of legislative objective. And the courts have already established that one of the main reasons that will be likely accepted by the courts as being a reasonable infringement of the right and justified is conservation. Okay. So you'll always see, you know, DFO go back to raising, oh, there's a conservation issue because they know that's a shutdown issue. There's no debate. Um, Our rights will never trump conservation, nor should they, nor should they. I'm a true believer in conservation and so so are our people. But at the same time, let's be honest and let's not play the game of how do we shut down the indigenous rights and and pull in the conservation card every chance we can uh, to have a justifiable infringement, which is what happened in Sonyaville two, three years ago. Are we talking three years now? I think we're getting close to it, where Sabagadagadi exercised their rights um, and and raised governance issue, and then government went in, and one of the reasons that they tried to shut it down later was to argue conservation. But meanwhile, we we did our work internally and found out, in fact, there was no conservation issue, and in fact, DFO had reports that they sat on showing that the lobster population in Area 34 was super healthy, um, and that there's no way that the 
minimal amount of fishing that would be done by the indigenous fishery would ever affect that conservation. So you could see how, you know, that card is played to justify infringement. Um, but other than that, the courts have not given a lot of direction on other things that will be considered justifiable infringements. Uh, public safety has been raised, but it isn't a, you know, it's there, but um, you've seen it raised in the eel fishery. Um, and so whether you could challenge that and say, was there really a public safety issue or not? I don't know. Maybe there wasn't. I have no idea. Uh, but they use that card in that. Uh, but other than that, you're not seeing a lot of, you know, justifiable infringements uh, case law. So they're open to challenge. Maybe they come in and say next year it's due to economics. Well, then we would probably challenge that and go to court and say, let's see what court says. Let's see if really is that a reasonable justification. So that's kind of where we're at. And of course, uh, if there's no justification, then there has to be an accommodation of the right somehow. There has to be something there that's provided back to the community. Uh, if they if they they got to get an agreement back to say, well, we are, we don't. It's not justified. It's not a justified infringement. Um, so let's try to figure out how we can accommodate the infringement. This is interesting. I just recently read Contested Waters, uh-huh. and some of our listeners are not from around Nova Scotia or this part of Eastern Canada or Canada at all. And I've been doing a lot of reading and writing about the 2020 Mi'kmaq lobster disputes, as you said, in Sonyaville, and that sort of scapegoat of using, well, conservation is an issue. What if the lobster are overfished as a way to sort of excuse the actions and behaviors that were happening there. And why I said this is interesting is that public safety could be cited as a justifiable reason to infringe upon treaty rights when, as you're well aware, there was incredibly violent riots and assaults that took place here in Nova Scotia over lobster. And I'm wondering if you might be able to delve into the lobster dispute of 2020 a little bit more for people that aren't from Canada or may not be aware that events of this magnitude happen here on the East Coast. Yeah, so uh, the background on that is, yeah, in in, uh, the fall of 2020, after waiting for, uh, I think, over 20 years for the Marshall uh, rights to be implemented by Canada because the decision was in 1999. And for 20 years, Mi'kmaq did not get to exercise that right. They were constantly told, you know, wait. Um, They were given some access commercial dollars for some commercial fishing, uh, but that's not livelihood fishing. That's a commercial boat is a part of the commercial system. And so finally, uh, Sabaganagati was the first community that said, no, enough is enough. We're going fishing. We have a management plan, which is consistent with UNDRIP and consistent with our governance rights. Um, and we, we have uh, a management plan that also recognizes a licensing system, a safety system for our fishers. Our fishers just have little tiny boats and we're going. And um, when they went down in the fall, they were met with great resistance from non-Indigenous fishers uh, who were violent against our fishers. Um, and to put it mildly, the RCMP and were very um, lax in their protection of our Indigenous fishers. And it seemed like there was a pass the buck because the RCMP would say, well, we don't have to protect on the water. That's fisheries and oceans. And then DFO, they were 
doing very little to support our fishermen on the waters. In fact, we'll probably add to the harassment of our fishers um, and seizing equipment and taking equipment under their broad discretionary powers under the Fishery Act, um, asking questions later, right? And so that led to uh, uh, mass, uh, I, I guess what we would call uh, mass crowds forming and you know in one incident there was three Mi'kmaq two Mi'kmaq fishermen in in a building uh, where they were storing lobster and they were surrounded by a mob of non-indigenous people who burnt the building and their lives were at stake we have live videos of them and um, that was only one incident the actual chief of the community was physically attacked uh, and and beat well tried to beat him he's quite a big man and he just managed to get away but I mean it was just unbelievable and the RCMP were all there um, and no arrests were made until way later until public pressure came on board and and then some arrests were made and and even then there was no seriousness to uh, really what happened and in fact I was a uh, one lawyer with two other lawyers Pam Palmeter. Um, was one other lawyer that I was with and we went forward and submitted a complaint to the United Nations uh, to the CERD uh, Human Rights Committee on the violation of Indigenous people's human basic human rights to be protected uh, in the exercise of their rights to get the same protection from Canada as any other person um, and uh, the UN in fact did send a scathe and leather to Canada um, you know, basically telling them to adopt the recommendations from the Senate report um, known as Peace on the Water and to, you know, implement Mi'kmaq rights. So that was a, that was a real eye-opener and it was an eye-opener because I think you can see how when played right, public perception can go in the hand of DFO and Canada when they want to close down our rights. Because one of the things they play onto people, I, I would argue, is the ethical perception um, and the character of Indigenous people in the exercise of our rights. And so always trying to make us look like we are, you know, unlawful and don't care about conservation. And how do they do that? They raise conservation issues where none exist. So to a general person on the street, they hear this, they hear, you know, oh, they had to shut down that fishery because of conservation issues. Right away, the, the general person is not gonna say, was there really conservation issues? The general person is gonna take that statement as it is, accept it and say, wow, those, I'll say Indians because that's some you know that term although socially unacceptable is still used and um, they'll say you know the indigenous people are they don't care about conservation they need to shut that fishery down when in fact that's not even the issue but it's always a play on words it's always how we are presented in the public mm -hmm. um, and that can go hand in hand in favor of Canada when they are trying to close down our rights and that's very much a big part of what happened um, in Sonyaville in, in 2020. Absolutely. It seems like there's a, a relatively new but very powerful sort of component of these issues now with everything being on video and people with phones and live demonstrating what's happening. And I'm wondering if you think that is a help or a hindrance to advocating through 
legislation and policy for Aboriginal and treaty rights. Oh, I think it's an absolute help. Just like anything else, it keeps government honest about what's Mm -hmm. really going on here. You know, just like how we have policing and now we have the live cams and you're able to see exactly, you know, you don't have to take the word of it, of the person, you can see the video. And so now we have evidence of what is actually occurring. And sometimes, you know, in our world today, one image can fly across this world so quickly and change everything. I mean, and I think that's when um, Canada woke up and started to pay attention to this issue. When I say Canada, you know, um, the federal government beyond DFO and the ministers started to pay attention, but only because Canadians demanded it. You know, the general public started saying, what's really going on down there? And is that our Canada? You know, general people started saying, is that who we are? You know, in this day and age of reconciliation? And and that's unacceptable. And started really seeing what was going on down there. Um, And I think it really changed the the level of the the game. It, It changed how transparent things could be as to what was being um, projected out there and what the reality was. I've heard you refer to Indigenous rights and fisheries as a hot potato of sorts. And we briefly touched on this a couple of questions ago, that ministers and federal decision makers have been essentially passing off to one another for decades now. I'm wondering what must happen to ensure that treaty and Aboriginal rights are respected and accommodated in our communities from your perspective. Oh, wow. (laughs) <laughs> that that's a big question that is a really well i i think a starting point is having a government that really recognizes that the colonial system is going to have to give away they're going to have to bend a little bit mm-hmm. to indigenous rights because i think what we have is for years, an entrenched system of Department of Fisheries and Oceans that have a entrenched view of how fisheries should be managed. And in their minds, they see this in accordance with the statute. Of course, I get that. It exists. There's no recognition of Indigenous rights in that statute. So if they want to take a hard road, they could say, you know, we don't even have to pay attention. Sure, okay, we're just going by the statute, which many of them do. Um, But there has to be a change in that perception. There has to be a recognition that, you know, colonial rights of privilege to fish are not the only fishing rights in this country that Canada has to consider. And I don't know how many more legal decisions we are going to have to have for Indigenous rights before Canada starts to say, you know, okay, we've got to change this game. And it can't just be a policy response. Like, Policy response is inadequate. Courts have said that. Courts have already said policy response to Indigenous rights is inadequate. There has to be more. And maybe that's an Indigenous piece of legislation um, on on access and fishing rights. Um, Or maybe that's serious conversations with Indigenous leaders about those things of governance and looking at Indigenous people and Indigenous laws. I think that's a big piece. And I think we could, there's existing things we can build on today that, but it's got to be away from that mindset of always trying to screw over Indigenous people on their rights. 
and somehow you know we got to save canada in this process we're all here we're not going away we're all here canada and indigenous people are all here and it doesn't it serve canada better as a country instability if you deal with indigenous rights the way they are supposed to be dealt with the courts have already told you so why don't parliament get it right and and the people are telling parliament as well i mean the people said that in 2020 um, come on they did a study and they said deal with indigenous rights implement them properly but yet we still have this adversarial position like we're you know, like we're the thorn in Canada's side, but we can be a better, stronger, stable country um, if 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 Canada would deal with Indigenous rights in a, in the way that they're meant to be dealt with. Do you think that the steps that you have mentioned are also kind of the first steps in Canada building a nation-to-nation relationship with Indigenous communities? Does that look the same or does that look different? Yeah, very much so. I think... I mean, just generally in a broad sense, absolutely. I think there has to be a change in the mindset and reconciliation is more than just words. I mean, Canada cannot sit there and say, you know, we wish to reconcile with First Nations and to make sure we're both moving forward as, you know, as Canada, um, Indigenous people right along with us, but at the same time, be doing these underhanded actions behind the back to undermine, you know, the sovereignty of Indigenous people and the rights of Indigenous people and the livelihoods of Indigenous people. And I don't mean livelihood, martial livelihood, I mean just life living mm-hmm. as individuals. And, and that has to be a sincere effort, I think. I'm also interested in your thoughts about what people from my positionality as settler students and sort of young emerging professionals in marine management can do to be allies to Indigenous communities around us, whether that be here in Mi'kmaq or elsewhere. Well, I think this goes without saying, and I think you're already on the right path, and that is educating yourself. Educating yourself about rights, Indigenous rights, and how they fit into the bigger scheme of things. Um, and understanding that, um, I guess, understanding perspectives of Indigenous people and how we approach rights. And and I say this in a very sincere way in the sense that we're not Pocahontas. So we're real people today. Like, we have real struggles, just like every other Canadian in this country we have to put food on the table we you know we don't have perfect systems we don't have you know we may have concepts of managing resources but we have people in our communities that don't want to follow our rules just like canada does and sometimes i think people from the outside can look in and say the indigenous people have everything all figured out we have good principles absolutely and we are trying very hard to implement them. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because you see a fly in the ointment. You know, because you see maybe we have an Indigenous person that's not practicing the way we want or is not following the rules the way. It doesn't mean we're all like that. It means that we have the same problems as every other uh, nation of people trying to develop rules and trying to develop governance. And and we're human beings. And so the struggle in governance development is 
dealing with lots of people uh, and trying to get, you know, everybody on the same page. And um, I think it's important to, you know, to look at us in that way as human beings in the 21st century, trying to move along just like everybody else. Um, and, 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 and just asking questions, you know, just talking to people and asking questions and trying to change your mindset on how things, how things are managed. It's, there's more than one way, you know, there's, there's other perspectives. And I, I think, uh, elder Albert Marshall from Eskasoni, you know, he's been, he's been, uh, essential. He's been an essential figure in trying to bridge non-Indigenous and Indigenous people together on common issues of resource management. And he started that conversation long before, you know, it was popular today. And I imagine when he started, people probably sat there and may have disregarded him or didn't get it. And today they get it. And I think that's a really important thing to think about is non-Indigenous and Indigenous ways of learning can go hand in hand and probably make us you know, give us better management tools on resources uh, in in this world than what we presently have. Now we get to hear your final five, which is a group of five final questions that every person that joins us here on the Fisheries Podcast get asked. Okay. One is just what is your favorite fish? Oh, God, my favorite fish has to be Balamu salmon. Mi'kmaq. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny, and just to give you a little thing on this, um, our territories and our people, as I spoke of earlier before contact, we had totems, what we call totems today. And so they were symbols uh, that was associated with a certain territory or a certain community. And so a lot of our communities had um, uh, Balamu as, as their symbols. And some of them have survived, like some of them, we don't have any written knowledge of it. You hear oral history, but when you go through the old historical documents, there's still some totems that have the Balamu that actually show that, or they'd have a canoe and the Balamu would be uh, drawn on the canoe. So anyways, that's just a little tidbit, but salmon, absolutely. That is so cool. Yeah. My second question in this section is what is your favorite memory from your career so far? That's a funny one. You know what my favorite, one of my favorite, I don't know if it's the all time, one of my favorite is going to the Supreme Court of Canada and I'm in a cab and I'm pregnant with my youngest daughter, Willow, who's now 24. Yeah, 24. And I'm with Chief Terry Paul and Donald Marshall, who's a good friend of mine. And we're in a cab and I'm sitting in the back. So we get to the Supreme Court. And Donald Marshall that morning was very nervous. Junior, his nickname was Junior. And he had a very, his personality, well, he didn't like the spotlight. He didn't like lots of, lots of uh, focus on him. So this was a nervous day for him. So we get to the Supreme Court and everybody's eager to get in there. All the chiefs are there and everybody's eager to get upstairs and into there. And I noticed Junior being reluctant to kind of move up. So I stood with him. I remember standing with him. We are very close friends. And so I'm like, chatting with him I know he's nervous I could tell so eventually I said junior you know we got to get up there they're going to start we got to get up there and he's like okay 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 so we head up we're the last two going up and when we get to the door to go in the security doesn't want to let us in 
They're like, oh, no, no, you can't quit. And I, and I have to tell the security, this is his case. This is Donald Marshall Jr. This is his case. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry, he said. It's just that there's nowhere else to sit. And so he said, I'm sorry, you guys go in. So we squeezed in and it was so packed. We sat way in the back corner of the very last um, bench there in the corner, squished in. And at the time, we didn't realize how important that day was going to be mm. looking back now. But I just remember that so well. Like now I often reference that in my mind. So that's wow. one of my most favorite memories. The next question is what is your dream job? Potentially you're already doing it. But. <laughs> yeah, I am kind of doing my dream job. I mean, I was lucky enough to have um, a godfather whose name was Chief Rich Maloney, and he was the chief of Sebago Negative for a very long time. He dedicated his life basically to our people and fighting for rights long before rights were even recognized. Like he was a fighter, and he taught me from a very young age. I was very, I was very close with him. He has lots of daughters, and thankfully they they love me. Uh, and allowed they allowed their father to be uh, shared with me, and I was very close with him. And he and he taught me about fighting for our people. Uh, he taught me at a young age about that. So all along my career, it always came down to how am I helping? How am I helping? How am I helping? And so even at this age, I mean, I have to make a living. I have to work. I'm I'm a lawyer, and I do what I can. Absolutely. And I love my job. I have a dream job. But the dream job isn't so much about making money as much as it's about having these issues brought to be considered by society and having them move forward ever so much, even if it's an inch. So, you know, when I look back at his career and everything he did, he moved that post for us. You know, he moved that goalpost further for our people. And so I think about that today. And I say, when I sit back and think about what I'm doing, am I helping or am I hindering? You know, and so my dream job, really, I'm living it because I get to help my people as best as I can. That's really beautiful. If funding was not an issue, what is a project that you would like to work on? Oh, wow. That is such a good question. If funding was not an issue, I think one of the best projects I would like to work on is, it probably wouldn't even be funding would be the issue, would be if you could get everybody to play ball. But I think a good would be trying to develop Indigenous governance for our leadership mm. in a way that recognizes the collective unity and identity of our people. I mean, we have the Assembly of Nova Scotia Chiefs, we have Assembly of this and that, but I'm talking about really taking the meat of an issue and trying to develop governance around it where it has to be developed by the nation, not by a band, not by one person, but by all of us and trying to conceptualize how we do that so that nobody could just run away with it. And it, it has mm -hmm. to be the way we would do it at one time and build in that process of, okay, so if you want to 
decide on this issue who has to be involved from where and how does that process work and who comes in and where's the grassroots in that and that's kind of my vision and i don't know if i'll ever see it in my lifetime but hopefully so i hope so too yeah and finally if there was one point or principle that you would like our listeners to take away from hearing you speak today what would that be oh my goodness right away in my head I think kindness but I think understanding you know understanding I think just taking the time to understand indigenous peoples and what we have given up so that Canada could be here Mm. and how little we ask for in return compared to what is gone yeah Sometimes I feel like people sit out there, there's some people that just say, you know, the Indigenous people, there's, oh, there's a residential school, and then there's missing and murdered Indigenous women, and then there's fishing rights, and oh, when is enough enough? But I don't think people understand that this is actually what has happened to our people. Mm. This is the colonial experience. Like, it has been one thing after another, after another, after another. This is the reality. And they need to put themselves in our shoes for one day and think how they would feel and where they would be. And then look at us again. Do a reassessment based on that and stop and say, okay. And I think it would give people a greater understanding of Indigenous people and Indigenous rights. Absolutely. So Rosalie, thank you for coming on our podcast today. It was a pleasure to learn more about your work and how to be a better ally to Indigenous peoples. If people want to learn more about you and the work that you do, how should they go about doing so? Um, I have a website, www.rfrancislaw.ca. I also have a LinkedIn site. You can find me there. Um, I have a Twitter account that I don't use often, but I do a little bit. Um, and that's by my name, Rosalie Francis. You can find me there. And, uh, and then my email, rosalie at rfrancislaw.ca. Send me a message. Awesome. I also, I can't imagine the pain and trauma that can be associated with conversations like these. So I would just like to thank you for taking the time to sit down with me and the grace with which you've treated me and discussed all of these incredible issues that are just outlandish and hard to even wrap my mind around and as I learn about it. And there's people in Canada that are living it. So thank you so much for being candid and being supportive and encouraging as a myself and other people attempt to learn about what's happening. Oh, absolutely. You're very welcome. And thank you for taking the time to, you know, unfold the many layers of Indigenous issues. Uh, yeah, I know it can be uh, quite layered and you sometimes sit there and go, wow, when does it end? But Thank you for wanting to learn and and to pass that on. And thank you for allowing me to be a guest on your podcast. Absolutely. It's been a pleasure. Okay. If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at the Fisheries Pod or old fashioned email through feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Remember, you can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream us from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or thefisheriespodcast.com. Don't forget that you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some of our Fisheries Podcast merch available on Teespring. 
My name is Reed Sutherland, and thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. Remember, we must try to understand Indigenous perspectives. Thank you.